0: Daily, in his service. Now, I want to. Uh, I want to, want to. Ask you to do something for me. I'm going to make a mark over here, or just write a letter. That one. You got it. <laughs> it's an A. Which one can you see better? Raise your hand if that's the best one for you or this one if this one's the best for you? Well, we've got a split audience here <laughs> I'm trying to find some way that we can everybody can see what I'm writing on the board so can you can you see it better here? Or over, there. A glare over there. Doesn't make any difference. No difference. Now, can you see it better here or there? <laughs> that was that was a question the a test. There's more glare here. More glare over here, so I'm going to go over here. Maybe I'll turn the light off. What do you think? That better? No. That one's better? well, (laughs) Well, I'm going to start out over here. See what you think. Jesus is talking about something old and something new. And He's talking about, basically, He's talking about something that's going to take place in their lives, which means that He's going to present something that is replacing the old with the new. And he uses two illustrations, basically. One illustration is taking a piece of cloth out of an old garment or out of a new garment and putting it in an old garment and trying to make a patch. It doesn't work. And then he uses new wine and old wine to show that it's, it's hard to contain New wine in an old bottle because it ferments and it'll explode it. Now, without getting involved in this business of alcoholic beverages and drinking alcoholic beverages, let us just say that wine was a table drink at that time, and they could get intoxicated with it. And eventually, if you let wine ferment until it, you couldn't drink it, let grape juice ferment until you couldn't drink it, it would go sour. But if you drank it before it went completely sour, it did, it did have an alcoholic level. Without fortifying it, it was not called a strong drink. So you fortified the wine with sugar. And they did typically, typically weren't doing that unless they wanted to get drunk. So the table wine was basically non-alcoholic. It had some alcohol in it, but not a great extent. I think wine can can reach about 20% alcoholic beverage by the time it ferments before it goes bad and it tastes sour. That's not what I'm preaching on this morning. (laughs) I I want to talk to you about things that are old and things that are new. Now, what he's going to talk about, basically, what we generally know something about is, he's going to talk about a contract. I'm going to write this kind of small here and just tell you what it is. We call it in the in the Bible, it's called a covenant, but we generally think of it as contracts. So God had a contract or had a covenant with with the people in the Old Testament times, and only with one people. And these people were called Israel. And these people originated from a progeny, from the, their progeny came from a ancestor. Named Abraham, his son Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob later became known as Israel, and Israel had 12 sons. That's called the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm telling you things you already understand, but we just have to keep in mind the fact that these were the only people to whom the Old Testament, what's called the Old Testament, was addressed. They were the only ones who were actually privy to the contract or the covenant. And it's called, in the Bible, it's called the Old Testament. Now, when Jesus came and when he died on the cross, everything changed. So, when we look at our Bible and we're reading it, two thirds of the Bible is the Old Contract, the Old Testament embedded in the Old Testament were promises that were going to be fulfilled when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he established a new contract, but keep in mind, this new contract was the last and permanent contract that God would make with humanity. The first contract was temporary. It was not intended to go on into eternity. The new contract is eternal. And it was permanent. And it's the contract under which we now live. But we don't live under the old one. And therefore, when we go back and start reading the Old Testament, the old contract, we have to keep in mind that it was not addressed to us. Now, there are a lot of, there's a lot of good information in the Old Testament. There's a lot of information that you need and a lot of things that will help develop your spiritual life As you read it and help in your your personal life and your contractual life with others, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that will help you in that way and will fortify you inwardly. But the Old Testament was not designed to be permanent. And it was not for you to view as a contract between you and God. That ended. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we read the first five books which is called by the uh, Israelites now, and they're called Jews now, because Israel dissipated almost in the 7th century before Christ, and it reduced itself into two tribes, and sometimes three tribes, that inhabited the place that we call Israel today, or Palestine. But that group of people sort of dissipated themselves and, and disappeared as a entity, as twelve tribes. But the Jews persisted and still persist today, and yet these people still seem to believe that they live under the old covenant or the old contract. And there are a lot of people in our society who believe that we still have contractual obligations with God under the Old Testament. Now, we're going we're to we're investigate that and, and uh, look at it a little bit this morning. The thing I want you to keep in mind is that when Jesus came, he came in what is called the end of the world. Did you know that? The end of time. He came at the end of time. After the era that we live in, there will be no more time. Time. That's what's going to happen. So there's not going to be another period of time in which God will come to this earth and make agreements with people. Now I'm reading in Hebrews chapter 9 at verse 26 that says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now the word world there means era. He came in the end of that time, so there's not going to be another time. Jesus is not going to reappear on this earth and establish another era or another time or another dispensation, as some some people like to call it. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection actually divided two large eras of time, what we call the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. And the word testament means agreement or covenant, contract. So the old contract and the new contract. Now in that light I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. And that's taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34. It's a quotation from one of the old prophets. We don't live under the old prophets, but the old prophets pointed toward a time. The old prophets were over here living in this era of time and they were pointing over to this era of time, and they were pointing to Jesus, and to what would take place during the time when Jesus was ruler on the throne. Now Hebrews chapter 8 at verse 6 begins this way, But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. That's what we're talking about, a contract or a covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. A new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. When God took Israel out of Egypt and He took them into the Sinai Desert, He made a new contract with them. But for us, that contract is not new. That's the old contract that He made with them. And when He made that covenant with them, He made it in concert with the laws He revealed to them. And so the laws that he revealed to them generally are known as the Torah, T-O-R-A-H. That's what the Jews call that, and it's called the teaching. This is the basis for their relationship with God. This is the basis of that covenant. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the first book, actually, Genesis, is simply a book of history. But from then on, from Exodus on through Deuteronomy, you have the basis or the underpinning of that old contract. So, if you were to say, "Well, I need to know what's in my contract," then the Israelites would look back at those four books, Exodus through Deuteronomy, and find their contract with God. That's what they. That's what Moses wrote up. He wrote it. Now, some think he did it on stone, but he got the Ten Commandments. On tablets of stone from Mount Sinai, but he wrote the law on papyrus in a book, as it was called, probably scrolls, and put them in the Ark of the Covenant, and they had them with them, and they took them with them when they went into the Promised Land. That's how they that's how they conveyed it over there. But the point is that that covenant or that agreement was temporary it was only temporary because it did not work to make people sinless it did not take away their sins they could not carry the burden of the commandments that god had given them he said this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days said the lord i will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. That sometimes confuses people. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The reason for this is, when a child was born into Israel, they were taken aside and they were taught, You are a child of God. You are an Israelite, and here's the rules and regulations. And they were to put them on their doorposts, they were to write them on on their sleeves, they were actually to write them on little scrolls and put them on their heads sometimes, on their foreheads, but they were they were to make sure that they had these everywhere. I used to I, I knew a fellow one time that that worked over in the in the apple orchard in the Santa Clara behind the Santa Clara Mountains. And he, he worked in the apple orchard and he worked in a big warehouse and he was converted to Jesus Christ. We taught him the gospel of Jesus Christ. He obeyed the gospel. Now, he had to be taught. He had to be taught. You say, well, this text says you'll no more teach your neighbor and teach your brother saying know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The point is, they have to be taught to become a child of God. But then they don't have to be taught that you are a child of God because they know that because He writes the laws in their hearts. That's where the law is in the heart, not on tablets. It's there. So it's not as if we don't have to teach God's Word, but it's as if we can't tell our infant child, you are a child of God, therefore act like one, because you can't become a child of God until you know Him. Once you know Him, then you become a child of God. So you don't take a person and say, well, now I have to teach you you're a child of God. You can't do that. You have to teach him, and then he becomes a child of God. Then, then you don't say, now I'll, I'll teach you how to do it. They shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No, the Lord For all they shall all know me, and I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He's made the first old now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. The Old Testament describes that peculiar people. Five books of law. Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you have twelve books of history. That starts out, of course, with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Esther, First and Second Kings Chronicles, Nehemiah, Esther, or Ruth, I shouldn't have said a while ago. Then you have Nehemiah and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So you have twelve books of history, and then you have five books of uh, prophets, major prophets, and then there are twelve. And then you have five more, twelve more books of uh, minor prophets. So you have 5, 12, five, five, twelve. If you if you're trying to keep track of Old Testament books, now these books have a great, a great bit of information in the, for us and help us learn how to live and relate to our fellow man and to God in some, in some instances. But the point is, this was just preparatory. These books are preparatory. These books are to lead us somewhere else. So you have Israel, first of all, who was in the Old Testament. So Israel was, was the people that God was speaking to and speaking only to them. No one else was under that contract except Israel. But under the new contract, it's all nations. Everyone is under the new contract. All nations. So when we teach someone the Word of God, we don't start by teaching them what Israel had to learn. We start by teaching them what they have to know in order to be a child of God. Because the new covenant pertains to us, And not not to uh, Israel. It it pertains to Israel in that sense. Because Israel now has come under the new covenant as well as we have. So in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 and 5. Now I don't want to confuse you here. Who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. That's what God gave Israel. Listen again. He gave them the adoption, that is, when they were born, they became a child of God. Israelite did under the old covenant from their birth. What did Jesus say? You must be born again to come into the kingdom. So you can't come into the kingdom by being born into a Christian family. Think about that a minute. Your children did not become Christians simply because you were a Christian. You can't tell them you are a child of God, therefore behave like one. That's not what they are. Until they are born again and come into the covenant relationship with God under Jesus Christ, they're not a child of God. So, he said, what about Israel? They had the adoption. They had the glory. They had the covenants. They had the giving of the law. They had the service of God and the promises. The promises were that there was coming a time when God would make a tremendous change in this service and have a new covenant. Under the Old Testament, all the other nations were excluded. Under the New Testament, all nations are included. Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 7, he said, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Israel. So now it's not just the the physical descendants of Abraham. Now it's the children of faith that are the children of Abraham. And the the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the nations through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. When the children of Israel received the law, they received the law written in stone. Written in stone. Remember that? Moses went up on the mountain and God wrote the law on two tablets of stone. Written in stone. The new covenant is not written in stone. The new covenant is written in our hearts. In 2 Corinthians 3.3 3, it says, For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And John said it this way in John 1.17. He said the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's another text in Romans chapter eight verse two. Says the spirit, of, the spirit of Christ. Let me read this to get it right. The law of the spirit of Christ is mentioned here in Romans chapter eight verse two. And he says, For the law of the Spirit of Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. So we have the law that's written in our hearts is written by the Spirit. And I would warn you at this point that you remember that. That you remember that when we talk about the law of the Spirit, we're not talking about regulations as is, is being the law that we follow. We're talking about the Spirit touching our hearts and moving us to do the things that God wants us to do. Instead of having a written document that says here's what you have to do if you're going to please God, this is the law. That's what Israel had. But Jesus said He's going to change that and it's going to be a different type of law. So when your heart is touched by the Spirit of God, and God writes His law on your heart, and of course you read it in the New Testament, but when you feel that Spirit writing upon your heart, you are being touched by the Spirit rather than being moved by tables of stone. You're touched by the Spirit of God, and you say to yourself, well now I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to live like He wants me to live. Basically, when we read the Old Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, those books, the five books of law, the twelve books of history, the five major prophets, the twelve minor prophets, what we're looking at in all of that is this. Listen carefully. This is a shadow. And in the New Testament, we have the reality, the substance The Old Testament is a shadow. Now, we can, we can use different terms in order to express this. Hebrews 10, 1 says it, though, just to get us on a scriptural basis. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. The law is a shadow. It's like Someone making a model of a new car that they're going to build next year. Okay? That's not the car. That's a model. That tells you what it's going to look like. And then they do a mock up, what's called a mock up of that automobile, right? They do a mock up. But that's not the actual car yet, is it? The car comes later. That's the shadow. That's the type. Sometimes these are called types and anti-types. A type is something that represents something else, which is called the anti-type. We don't use those expressions that much, so we have to use other terms. So we use the model, and we use the actual substance or the thing itself. So the Old Testament was a model. The Old Testament was a shadow. The Old Testament gave you some idea in picture form of what they knew was going to be what the new covenant was going to be what the new people were going to be that's what the what the old testament was doing it's called a shadow now there's there's a lot of things in this that we could we could take up but let's take up first of all this term sabbath the old testament sabbath and this is where people began to miss what the old testament law was talking about what the old testament was talking about the old testament Sabbath was a shadow. It was a form of something better. Now the Sabbath is Saturday. That's not what the word Saturday means. Saturday means Saturn's day, which was a Roman god. Saturday, however, is the day of the week that is the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. So, when we're talking about the Sabbath, we're talking about Saturday. And on the Sabbath, according to the old testament law the sabbath was the day that god said pronounced it holy he said this is a different day this is different for you and the sabbath laws told people that they were not to go about their their ordinary activities when they collected the manna for instance they were not to go foraging all over the countryside and gathering more so they could sell it to somebody else you see they were just to gather enough for themselves. And if they gathered a little bit more, they weren't supposed to market it, right? They were supposed to give it to the neighbor who didn't get enough. So, when we talk about the Sabbath when Jesus came along and people were saying, Hey, you're not keeping the Sabbath properly, what was he not doing? He wasn't he wasn't plying his trade on the Sabbath, was he? He wasn't wasn't gathering corn. His disciples in Matthew chapter 12 were not gathering ears of grain so they could sell them. They were eating them. Bonnie and I were talking about this a little bit this week. And uh, she said, well, isn't there a Sabbath day's journey mentioned in the Bible? Well, they did have a Sabbath day's journey, but it's not from the Bible. We can read about it in the Bible, but it did not come about from God's law. Sabbath day's journey was generally what they imposed on each other. And they got that from the, the area that they could travel around the, the Levitical cities of refuge. 2,000 paces. Anyway, there's no such thing in the Bible as a regulation for a Sabbath day's journey. They could not go about marketing things. They could not go about their every work a day. So they even told the women, don't, you don't have to cook on this day. You don't have to do all your housely uh, services and work, your, your service that you'd commit as a, as a mother and a wife and so forth. Everybody take it easy. That's what God said. He rested. He quit. He didn't do anything on the Sabbath. So He told Israel, He said, knock it off. You do not have to earn anything on the Sabbath. You don't have to work on the Sabbath. You don't have to plow on the Sabbath. You know what the people accused Jesus of? When he was healing someone, they said, hey, it's, it's not lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath day. Well, for goodness sakes, was he, was he plying his occupation? Was he making money? Was he marketing his skills? What was he doing? He's just doing good. He said, is it, is, it right to, is it right and lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? He said, which of you, having an awkward ass in the ditch, does not get him out on the Sabbath day? You know what the or ass was good for? Work. Making money. And yet they said, it's okay if we do that, but you can't heal. You see, they didn't even understand what they were regulating people about at that point. And they were not following it themselves. What was the Sabbath for? A rest. What is our Sabbath? Let me read it for you. We know that the Sabbath day is the day that pictures, it's the shadow of eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 4, at verse, beginning at verse 1, he says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest. So what is our, what's the promise that God's made to you of entering into the rest? Well, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to worry about tomorrow's food on the table. You don't have to worry about paying a bill on the first of the month. You don't have to worry about your utilities, about your rent, about anything. When's that going to happen? When can you just step back and say, I've got it made? That's called heaven. Yeah. You know that? That's called heaven. So, the shadow was the Sabbath, and heaven is the substance. Shadow was the type, heaven is the antitype. Okay, he goes on, he says, "Unto us was the gospel priest, as well as under them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which believe do enter into rest, as he said. said, Paul said, we're going to get into our rest. We're going to get it. As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, talking about Israel, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he said in a certain place, on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So Israel did not get into that real rest. They got into the Sabbath rest. So every every Saturday, these folks were to take time off. And they had a tough time of it. You know what? They didn't want to do that. They wanted their their uh, enterprise to go on. They wanted things to continue. They wanted to be able to make sure that they weren't getting behind in anything, that they weren't losing a step to their competitor. He said they that, they that were first entered in the rest couldn't get in the next one. Why? Because they weren't even observing the first one. When people talk about the Sabbath, they're talking about something that God told Israel to do in the shadow. The, the, uh, the form, the, the model. But we have heaven as our rest. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention to you. And that is that in the Old Testament, God told them to make a tabernacle. You probably can't read this. Because it's getting my ink is getting low. There it goes. Make a tabernacle. He said, "This is where I'm going to meet you." Do you remember the, the Old Testament tabernacle out in the wilderness? God told Israel, the people of God, He said, "Make me a tabernacle where I'll meet with you." And so they made it, and it was it was a it was a very elaborate or a, a, a very elaborate tent or tabernacle is made of precious materials, and every night when Israel was supposed to stop and settle down and and spend the night, a cloud came down on that tabernacle and rested on it. And as long as that cloud was in the tabernacle, they were not to move. When the cloud came out of the tabernacle and went forward, they were to hitch up their britches, get everything together, and follow. They were going to the promised land. And sometimes in order for them to understand that God was there, in order for Moses to go ahead and talk with him, there was a bright light that, took, that uh, overwhelmed the tabernacle that they could see from outside. That was a the tabernacle. And then, when, uh, finally, when David came along, he said, It's not right for me to live in a house of stone and for, the, and for God to be living in a tent. And so he asked God if he could build him a tabernacle, build him a tabernacle, build him a temple. And God said, Well, will let your son do it, which is Solomon. So Solomon built what is called Solomon's temple and it was an elaborate edifice it was destroyed and then the, just before Jesus came to this earth about 30 years before he got here there was a, a temple built by Herod that rivaled that of Solomon in Jerusalem in the city of Jerusalem on the hill called Zion and that's where Israel felt that that's where God was and that's where they could meet with him God wasn't anywhere else. He was just in that tabernacle and in that temple. And yet, Isaiah 66 verse 1 says that God dwells not in temples made with hands. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool and what house will you build me? Now, can you imagine trying to build a house for God? A tabernacle? Where does God dwell? Where did he dwell? They said he dwelt here in the tabernacle or the temple. And that has bled over into the new covenant. Did you know that? People build great edifices today, great temples, great buildings, great tabernacles, and say, This is where you come to be with God. Here's where you can be with God. And people buy that. That's not taught in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it said that's where it was, but not in the new, not under the new covenant. As a matter of fact, the place where God dwells is in your heart. That's His dwelling place, and He thinks it's a pretty place to be, a beautiful place. Let's read a couple of texts. First Corinthians 6:19 says, "What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own?" In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, under the new covenant, the place where God dwells is the heart. Well, someone says, in order for me to really get close to God, I'm going to go up on a mountain like Moses did. Get closer to God. Someone else says, well, you know what? I'm going to go to my local tabernacle, the local temple. I'm going to go to the church building. And I'm going to go in there because that's a holy place. That's where I'm going to be with God. And yet, under the new covenant that we're under, the place you are with God is in your heart. If you don't bring him into that house, he's not there. Did you know that? This building was built so that we, as a people, could come together and bring God with us and come together and worship. So He's here with us. Why? Because we brought Him. When this building is vacant, somebody can't say, well, I'm going to go down to the church building where God is and I'm going to pray. Well, if you don't take Him, He's not there. If you don't bring Him with you, you're not going to find Him there. He's with you. He's in you. There's no more sacred place on this earth than your heart. That's where He is. That's the new covenant. That's where God is. I'm going to leave it at that. There's some comparisons made in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 that talk about the different vessels that are contained in the Old Testament tabernacle. To talk about the golden candlestick that is in one part of the tabernacle. This, by, by the way, represented the churches, which means that the church, which is what you are, is the one who upholds the light of this world. The light of this world, by the way, is Jesus Christ. When we quit holding Jesus Christ up and start holding up our own opinions and our own thoughts and our own traditions then we have put out the light but when we hold the light up for the world to see which is Jesus in his word in the gospel the word of God Jesus is the word when we quit holding that up then the bible says in Revelation chapter 1 that he's going to come and take away the candlestick We'll, we'll just quit being that You wonder, well, where should I I be? What people should I be with? You should be with those people that are holding up Jesus Christ for the world to see. Because that's the the function of the church. The the Lord's table is the place that represents the uh, body of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was instituted or started at the Passover feast. When Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem with His disciples they got together and, and they rented an upper room and when they got there they, had, they, they observed the Passover they took the uh, the lamb that was supposed to be the representative of the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world which is Jesus Christ they took the lamb and then they took the bread and they had, they had, uh, um, they had the fruit of the vine or wine on the table as well and Jesus when he took the bread he said uh, this is my body take heed this is given to you when you when you partake of this. In First Corinthians chapter eleven, he delineated it again. They were one body and one bread, and when they took of the bread they represented the life of Jesus Christ. And when they took the fruit of the vine, they represented his death on the cross. But the Old Testament Passover was the shadow. And the New Testament, the Lord's Supper, the Passover, the shadow, the Lord's Supper, the substance the reality and it goes on like this you, you can see this in, in so many things of the tabernacle you can see the, the table of showbread with the incense the uh, candle of incense there and we can find out very quickly that incense represents the prayers of the of the uh, faithful so you have a shadow in the old and you have the substance in the new so what, what should we do should we just not read the Old Testament I, I remember I had a I had a Bible from one of my relatives, ancient relatives. And just the New Testament was used. The Old Testament hadn't been cracked and looked at at all. That's not, not correct. We need to look at the Old Testament, but we look, we look at it properly. We say, okay, what's in the Old Testament for me? Information. You can see the shadow. You can see the beginning. You can see, you can see the prophecies that point forward to Jesus Christ. You can see how God dealt with mankind then. You can see those who are faithful and not faithful. You can see all of these things in the Old Testament. But when it comes to living and relating to God, it's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that is important because that's the substance of our life with God. Not the the shadow. That's the substance. Well, we we pray that you'll... you'll, uh, Remember that when you open your Bibles, when you go through your Bible reading. Don't forget to read about Jesus and read the New Testament and see what you're supposed to be doing. Read the Old Testament and see about what they were doing and how they got everything to us. God help you do that in your Bible study. Let's stand and sing the song of encouragement. 475, 475.